Well, I guess we ought to get started. Uh, my name is Dave Johnson, and Thursday afternoon, uh, Pastor called me up. I think he was under the inf influence of legal opiates. <laughs> and, uh, well, if you know, uh, anyway... And I, I think I, I think I look. You ever saw what desperation looks like? I think you're looking at it. I, <laughs> I think that's. I was the only one that he could find at the time, which is fine. Which is fine. He did that once. I think he called me once before on a f Friday morning, asking me to go to the rescue mission. So I, anyway. <laughs> but. Uh, oh yeah, I'm right there. I'm. After, I'm like number five on the list, you know, fifth string, but that's okay. Let's, uh, let's have a word, and I'll get started, and certainly we need to invoke God's help with today's ramblings. <laughs> God eternal, we truly praise you. Holy is your name on this, the Lord's day, as we're gathered to contemplate, to look at the scriptures, and to in some way draw closer to thee. We pray that thy spirit may attend this class. And the few ramblings and other thoughts that I prepared may be cogent and logical. And truly may your spirit abound here as we, as we talk and discuss and search your scriptures together. Lord, we praise your name this time together. And again, we praise it in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Pastor Doug asked me if I just, I, a lot of you, I see some faces that probably don't know. I, uh, I'm a native Utah. In fact, I was born in Lehigh, what, about eight miles away. And then our parent and my family moved to Provo, and my dad was a steel worker. So I matriculated all through the Mormon system, you know, did a mission, married in the temple. My wife's right here, Kathy. She was born in Orem Bench. I think that's before they were even incorporated. <laughs> so, and we've been married 50 years now. Yeah. <laughs> we have seven kids, four daughters that are in state now, and then, and then uh, a daughter in Texas, and a son in the Philippines, and a boy in uh, California. So that's our family. Uh, my wife left Mormonism 89, am I right there? I think that's what comes to mind. Uh, it took me a little longer than her, which was a bone of contention. <laughs> uh, I, used to be the, I used to be the bishop on the ward house just down the street here, what, a mile north of us. <laughs> and so I officially left Mormonism in 2007 when I got baptized in South Mountain Community Church. A little story I've never told about that is while, I, while we attended over there, I did several mission trips to uh, Mexico. And one of the guys, there was a group of us, like you know, 12, 15 of us. And one of the guys that went down to, with us uh, was a postal worker. I didn't know this, but he worked with one of my neighbors who was a postal worker there in Sandy. And apparently, shortly after that mission trip, I come home and decided I got baptized, April Fool's Day, 2007. <laughs> uh, anyway, and uh, I didn't know that 
as men do in the workplace, they were sparring. He says, ha ha, we baptized your bishop, ha ha ha. <laughs> anyway, and that, that uh, caused a little, he didn't appreciate it, so he immediately turned me into the stake president. And anyway, I, shortly thereafter, after, after I exited the, the Mormon church, anyway. And so that's a brief history, okay. And uh, I, uh, when, get back to the subject at hand, when Pastor called me, he says, you could talk about anything. I says, well, that's almost the worst topic anyone can give you. <laughs> and a, a week ago, last Sunday night, I attended uh, a close friend says, come on, come with me, let's go. This guy from the radio who's, a Bible, not the Bible answer man, but a Bible answer man says he'll, he's going to set us all straight. I said, okay, I'll go there. Anyway, I went there and it caused me nothing but consternation <laughs> because basically he was propagating all those things that, you know, that I've tried to learn in Christianity and that, the idea of what baptism is and when we baptize. Basically, he was propagating that we should infant baptize, we should do this, we should do that. I says, what the heck? I says, what is this? <laughs> But I know this guy is a devout believer, okay? I, I don't question that. And I says, how do I reconcile that? And I don't want to talk about baptism per se. At least one, one small idea is, is, is you read the Great Commission, Christ told his disciples to go teach people and then baptize them. I says, how do you teach babies, okay? <laughs> you can't, anyway, and I, I just, I'll, I'll just leave that argument there. Maybe that's simplistic. But this, this, I drew back a little bit from the whole methodology of this. I says, what do we, what do we glean from this? And I, I, I remembered a, an incident in Corinth. And if, if you notice, I, I tried, this is my stream of, the handout that I've given you is sort of a stream of consciousness that I had as I tried to put this together. And so there is, I hope there's some logic here. And I'll try to, I'll try to do that. But, First, I want to frame the problem. And the problem is if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it all starts. <laughs> and I read, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that everyone that says, I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I have baptized none of you except Cyprus and Gainas, and so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any others. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would, would, would not be made void. You know, there's several things happening here. Is, this is human nature, if there's ever human nature displayed. <laughs> that 
oh, I like what this guy says. No, I like what this guy says. Paul is trying to harness all this in. And this is kind of what I think I witnessed last Sunday evening, is this idea, this disparity of beliefs, whether you can baptize in the ocean, whether you can't baptize in the ocean, do you baptize this, do you baptize that? Uh, Christ instituted two sacraments, baptism and communion. And uh, as, I, uh, as I, I kind of mused on this, and what happens when you prepare these lessons, I end up on a rabbit trail, so I start studying other things. But communion, whether you believe what Catholicism holds or what Lutheran holds or what basic, what basic evangelical Christians hold, there's different views of what communion is. Even that we've messed it up. And, and it isn't my desire to uh, go into that foray. But uh, I, I kind of take this from a pastor I listen to all the time, and it's Alistair Begg, and he has this phrase that he uses over and over again. He says, the main things should be the plain things. <laughs> and uh, that's where I want to dwell today, and how do we decide what the main things are? If we're truly a Christian, if we truly believe in Christ and Him crucified, there should be certain areas that are absolutely plain and have to be inviolate. And uh, first of all, I, I wanted to talk about the, I broke this down. Maybe you have some other ideas. Please, if you have ideas that should be plain things. And again, this is sort of the ramblings, my stream of consciousness here, is I cut and paste on the internet as I prepared this. But I thought this is important, and this is something I don't hear too much, is this intellectual side of scriptures and how important they are, not only that way, but how absolutely miraculous God has preserved his word through the ages. And on this first page here, it starts in, of course, I printed on both sides to say paper. Anyway, here is some... Uh, Josh McDowell and other Christian apologists from Loyola, Biola, have gone through and made a comparison from ancient man's manuscripts that we rely on and compared that to the manuscript of what the Bible has. And uh, there you'll see, I don't know, a myriad of bullet points here that they, like in Aristotle's work, they only had five manuscripts. And it was dated 14 years, 1400 years from the event. So between where Aristotle wrote them down, or they were recorded, 1,400 years had transpired. And then it says they had 1,000 manuscripts, but those manuscripts that they have are 1,200 years from the event. On we go, Plato's work. Uh, Plato's work, they only had seven manuscripts, and they dated 1,200 years from <coughs> And then there's these other historical works. One work, they only have seven. Uh, it goes, these are people that we don't know unless you study the classics. These, here's another work that they only had eight manuscripts. Uh, here's one in the middle there. Caesar's finished account of the Gallic, Gallic Wars. There was 10 manuscripts dated 1,000 years after the event. 
Now, why do I illustrate this? This is probably useless information to you, but it's to draw a comparison and a contrast to God's holy word. Uh, and, and, uh, one, before I get to the, to, to the Bible's historicity, we, uh, in second place is Homer's Iliad, the story of the Trojan War, has 900 manuscripts, and they date 950 years from the event. They have recently found more manuscripts. This, this article was written in uh, 2017 that date 400 years from the, the, the event. Now, this I want to read in entirety. It's in, the, it's in red there. This is the God's scripture. In first place is the Bible, the New Testament. The total count of the early manuscripts available today are 25,000. Uh, Josh McDowell has recently claimed that we have closer to 66,000 with the advent of many discoveries in artifacts like mummies, wrappings, and the Bible contains the manuscript fragments numbering. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, do some creative reading here on the, on the numbers here, but there's 5,800 Greek manuscripts dating to 30 to 150, uh, 150 years from the event. with the earliest copy dated A.D. 117. Anyway, over 8,000 manuscripts of other languages, Aramaic, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Syriac, Georgian, Slavic, date to the second century. Over 10,000 manuscripts in Latin Vulgate dated from the third century from 300 to 350, uh, 350 years from the date that they were written. Now the Vulgate, that's an important one because this is where the King James Version comes from. This is where the, as it's phrased, the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, comes from basically the Latin Vulgate. It wasn't until Luther's time that they actually used the Greek New Testament to make translations. And that's one thing that sparred the Reformation. This last comment, the Bible and the New Testament are in particular have only primary source authors who were eyewitness and who were alive at the same time of the event. The New Testament autographs were completed and used by the end of the first century AD and have surveyed manuscripts and fragments dated within 25 to 150 years of the event. Does anyone have Isaiah 48 memorized? <laughs> Someone want to read that to us? <clears throat> no takers. 48 what? Uh, 40 verse 8. Excuse me, I misspoke. Get those get those thumbs going on those. <laughs> Uh, if, when I left Mormonism, I, the pastor that the, my wife and I listened to all the time uh, used the New American Standard Bible. And if you have that, that's one of the introductions. That's a big verse. That's one that they use as they introduce the translation of the New inter, the, the NSAB Bible. Is that this verse, that God's word endures forever. Okay, now... 
uh, would someone look at this? See the next two verses below Isaiah there. Uh, would someone look up 1 Corinthians? You see the reference there in 1 Corinthians 2. And the other one in John 5, 39. Okay, go ahead. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. Is that New King James? It's okay, don't matter. Like I know, it's all right. Christ is here. He's chiding the Pharisees, Sadducees. He says, you search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. But if you really read the scriptures, you would understand it's those that testify of me and who I am. Okay, did someone have the, the verse in, in Corinthians? And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay. I, I know this is really a cursory, a super cursory outline, but my, my goal was to point out how important the scriptures are, how that God had preserved them, how he maintained them, but the main theme of the scriptures is, is like a one-note samba, is to testify of Christ and who he is. And Paul, I, I love that verb, he says, I don't, know, I don't know anything. Well, he knew a lot of stuff, okay? But the only thing that was really important was Christ and him crucified. You know, and then Christ makes this thing. If you search the scriptures, you're going to find out who I am. Okay. Now, here, uh, I might, I, I didn't mention in my introduction that I'm a retired railroader, college dropout. So, <laughs> uh, this idea, and I guess because I can say the word I like saying this, this, ne this next topic about the scriptures the perspicuity of scriptures is what in the world is he talking about? Say the word again. Perspicuity. <laughs> now, this is important, okay? I, you know, we can joke about that. and People make long words for a specific reason, okay? It's certainly, now this is, this statement that I'll read here was written 400 years ago, roughly, okay? And basically, this is the hallmark of what framed one of the main founding principles that framed the Reformation. And it's simply the fact that why the church wanted to keep a lid on the translation of the Bible. They did not want to have people to have the scriptures in their own language. Because it would rise, well, they won't understand it. They haven't got the education. They don't, they, they're not capable of it. We, we, we don't want, we want to keep the scriptures away from them. And so this is what the perspicuity of scripture means, okay? Matt, would you, if you got that, would you mind reading that statement there? The doctrine of the clarity of scripture, often called the perspicuity of scripture, is a Protestant Christian position teaching that those things which are necessary to be known believe and observe for salvation are so clearly propounded mm -hmm. and open to in some place in scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means mm -hmm. may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them by Westminster Assembly. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me let me try to put that in, you know, twenty first century English. I'll give me give me a uh, let me attempt. The idea is that a person with a normal, just an average education, with a normal effort, 
and a, a normal intellect would be able to read the scriptures, to understand them, and he would understand them enough to find God's saving grace in the scriptures. <laughs> That's what the perspicuity of scripture. You'll, you'll forget the word. You might hear it again. You know, but I... That's so important. And that, basically that is one of the foundations of the Reformation is this idea that people could read the scriptures and they could understand what they mean. And that is, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said amen. Oh, okay, amen. <laughs> okay, maybe I should have just, you know, I quit trying to, you know, use big words. Just the, clar the clarity of scripture, okay, I have there. but. Remember that perspicuity. Don't you like saying that? Say it about five times. Okay. <laughs> now, something that I, we'll use a phrase that I hear a lot in the news now. Let's circle back a little bit <laughs> to in, in 1 Corinthians. I'll, let me, I'll just reference this thing. And I, I, we didn't read this scripture in, in 1 Corinthians where Paul mentions, he says, that first, the Jews, it was a stumbling block. The teaching of Christ was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it was absolute foolishness. So if you can kind of, if you can kind of rip that methodology, there's two p reasons why people disagree with you. One is they think that you're interpreting it completely wrong. That's what the Jews thought about the early Christians. That isn't the Messiah they wanted. That's not the Messiah they're wrong. It was their stumbling block. They, they couldn't accept that. And then you have the Greeks, which are kind of emblematic of our, our intellectuals today, is, <laughs> oh, you stupid, oh, what a rube. You know, you have, <laughs> you're just a stupid rube. You don't understand that. Uh, that. That can't be. God can't do that, you know. And so that's really two reasons why people would disagree with you. Is that basically, they think you're wrong. Second, they think you're stupid. <laughs> you know, that you're just, uh, you know, you're just a rustic that can't understand what I understand because I am, I've learned so much more than you. And, 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 and uh, Paul touches base with that in Corinthians, which you're probably familiar with. Okay, what I've tried to lay out here, foundation one, number one, in order, one of the plain things is that God's scripture is absolutely vital to understanding God. If you discount and minimize God's word, you are completely, you'll never be able to understand who God is and what he expects us to be, you know? And so that's inviolate rule number one. Uh, I think, you know, in uh, Sola Scriptura, as it is called by, you know, the, Calvin, okay. Okay, second absolutely important inviolate thing that we must understand is who God is and, and the Trinity. And I, and I boy, I, I probably did a poor job on this. This is, this is a topic in and of itself that could be a whole Sunday school class for several weeks. But I, I just ripped out some important verses here. Does anyone mind looking up Romans there and then the Matthew scripture and then John? Maybe some... Is there, the, the one in Romans might be a little more obscure. <laughs> anyone got that? Romans 1, verse 20? I do. Okay. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
his eternal power and divine nature have been clear, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so the men are without excuse. Paul is telling the Romans there, look, all you've got to do is look around you and you know of the existence of God Almighty and who he That's is. Right. We're without excuse, okay? And how many people, you know, I have members of my own family that, you know, they would just, you know, just like that. Uh, anyone? The other one is sort of a verse we read at Christmas all the time. Uh, Matthew, who, who has that one? Go ahead. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from, his, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus. Okay, this is the mystery of godliness. It's something that we believe but don't fully understand how God put on flesh and dwelled among us. This is absolutely paramount. If you don't accept that, which I, you know, read many commentaries, see many preachers, they minimize that. They it just, they, they can't understand that. I, 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 yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, did you, did you say the, the virgin birth? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the virgin birth. Yeah. Excuse me, if I wasn't clear, thank you. Yeah, this is absolutely, absolutely, you know, an absolute linchpin, okay, in our belief system. Scripture, God who he is, the virgin birth. And then the other, one, the other verse, is, I guess I just threw that in because I like hearing it recited. Does anyone, have, <laughs> has anyone got that one? <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, how do we, you know, I, I, maybe you guys could pick out some better verses. I think I did okay here. Pointing out who God is and how we have to, you know, understand who he is and seek him out. Okay, that's why we're here today. Okay, and this came to mind. Again, here's another maybe not completely coherent thought that I had. But I love this, you know, I love this idea where Christ, many people think of Christ as the good teacher. That he was, oh, someone we, you know, he's a Gandhi type, or he's, you know, a Buddha figure, he taught us, or Confucius, he's a wise teacher. But here, here, as C.S. Lewis mentions, Christ declares his divinity. And there, there, are seven, there are seven statements here. I'll leave these for you. I think the whole sermon series is have, been, have been given on these, and rightfully so. First of all, Jesus said he was the bread of life. He's that what sustains us, okay? Number two, Jesus wrote again, he says, he is the light of the world. He's the one that guides us and directs us. I, I love the backstory on that one. This was given what we, what we would call Hanukkah, when they have the festival of the lights, when Christ is giving that, that he is the light. And they would light up the gigantic candelabra. And Christ says, no, I, I'm the light of the world. This, this, you know, I love the context here. Number three there, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will 
go in and go out and find pastures. Christ is the only door that we can enter and achieve that. I think of Monty Hall, anyone old enough? To remember? <laughs> There's only one door, okay? <laughs> no one, everyone got that? Everyone got that stupid reference? Okay, anyway. Uh, let's make a deal. <laughs> I know, I, that's really bad humor to link with that I am statement. I apologize. Anyway, I am the good shepherd. Christ is the one who desires to guide us and direct us. And then, and then Paramount here at Lazarus' tomb, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He believes in me, though he are dead, yet shall he live that he is our hope for, for even now, but even hereafter. And then in John 15, he says, I am the vine. And I think in verse 15, I, there's one verse I did remember. It says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I am in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. Without me, ye are nothing. That's, I always memorize, any verses I have memorized, it's all in King James. But. And... We have to realize that any fruit or any, you know, anything that we truly enjoy, we have to be found in Christ. And then the last statement is this paragraph mentions. Matt, would you mind reading that last paragraph? I get tired of talking. <laughs> the eighth I am statement is found here in John 8.58 and is the most profound of the church. Here Jesus makes... Jesus makes two improbable claims that rocked the world of the Jews to whom he was speaking and should give us pause. He said that he existed before Abraham, who had died perhaps 2,000 years prior to Jesus of Nazareth. He also equated himself to God, taking the holy name of God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And which was so holy that the people of Jesus' day would not even utter it yeah. out loud. <laughs> and if I remember that, if I remember that they took, they were going to take up stones to stone him. This verse, this this is called. Okay, here's another, this is this word is called the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word. Okay, <laughs> and uh, it has four Hebrew letters. And this people, instead of saying, instead of saying Yahweh, which basically is our pronunciation of this word, the Jews would just say Adonai. They would read, they'd go along and read and say, oh, not, no, I can't say that, Adonai. Adonai. And they would not pronounce God's name. And for God to make this pronounce, for Christ in the form of God incarnate, to say that he was the I am was absolutely horrific. And I think this is so important that when we talk to people, it says, oh, Jesus is okay. Well, he's more than okay. He's God, okay? And I think this is important. Yeah. All right. Number, uh, to me, maybe your list would be different. Uh, first of all, we have the scriptures, who God is, who Christ is. Now, who are we in this great scheme of things? Who are we? And I did a cut and paste from my 
New American Standard Bible. Uh, when I left Mormonism, I got a New American Standard Bible. In fact, I got, anyway, that's another story. We'll talk about it. But the reason I like it, you know, that might raise ire here. I talk about division. What Bible should I use? <laughs> but the reason I like the New American Standard is because I like the formation of it. When I read it, and I've, I've copied it verbatim here, if you're reading the Old Testament, the New American Standard puts everything in, in small cap letters. <laughs> and so I, that's why I like, oh, that's where that's found. Instead of having to look and see the little the superscript, right. I can see, oh, this is from the Old Testament. And that's, and, and I like that, okay? And, and so that's one, that's one reason why this version appeals to me. But here's... Uh, Here's, here's what, uh, anyone would like to read that, volunteer? <laughs> uh, it starts with us, the human condition. Read Romans. It starts there in Romans 3, uh, verse 9. You want, you want, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Read that. <laughs> As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have not become useless. There is none who does good. There is none. Not, there's not even one. Mm -hmm. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, mm -hmm. they keep deceiving. <laughs> the poison of apps <coughs> is under their lips. <coughs> whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Mm -hmm. Their feet are swift mm -hmm. to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Mm -hmm. In the path of peace, mm -hmm. They have not known. There is no no fear of God for their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah. That's our condition. And I honestly think that until you realize you have to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. This is the bad, you know, this is the most condensed, <laughs> at least I think verse in the scripture that defines our bad condition, who we are, and our absolute need for Christ and him crucified. And until you realize that situation, you truly will not understand what Christ has done for you and what you can have in believing in him. Anyway, that's, I, I, I just think that that's one of the absolute pillars of faith is to know your fallen state and to understand it. Okay, to reiterate, scriptures, God and who he is, who Christ is. And then thirdly, what, what is my situation? Who am I? Now, again, for people that have probably been in Christianity a lot longer than I have, I apologize if I, you know, <laughs> well, I apologize for it. I, I love this. If you want to turn to Second Timothy, I want to draw some comparisons here. Second Timothy. Uh, I, oh, did I write first? Oh, oh, hello. Did I write the right reference down? Second Timothy one twelve through sixteen. It should be Second Timothy. Oh, flu paw. It should be Second Timothy. Mm -hmm. Oh, 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 oh. Someone's 
someone got lost here. Second Timothy 12. Yeah, Second Timothy 1, 12. Oh, what? How did I mess that up? No. Well, I was wondering where he's talking about his grandma and his, his mom and his grandma. Oh. Yeah. Okay, one, one, if you found it, okay. I, someone, there's a loose nut on the keyboard. Okay. <laughs> Has anyone got that verse about where he mentions his, his mom and his, his grandmother? For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. It was a reference. That was the first five. Thank you. Thank you for. You got to keep the teacher humble. Anyway, <laughs> what? Let me. Let me. Let, let's apply that concept a little bit. When did you really start thinking about what faith was? I got. I read. I read this scripture, and I thought. I remember we. Uh, my dad was a Jack Mormon growing up. He eventually got really active in Mormonism. But we had one Bible in the house. And as a kid, you always have to look at the pictures, okay? And I remember some of the scary pictures <laughs> in this Bible. And it got my, kind of got my attention. You know? I said, wow. Well, I, you know, you see Adam and Eve getting kicked out. And I just remembered. And my mother was always active. Uh, she taught... In that days, it was she only taught Old Testament in a Mormon Sunday school, and so it was kind of hard to mess that up. Okay, <laughs> and so anyway, I learned these stories, and they and they and they weigh on you, and all of a sudden they, they start to bear fruit who they are, and I think that's what I, I I ask you to muse on your own background, what happened when you I mean this is Paul saying listen Timothy go back to the basics. What happened, what seed was planted in your heart that, birth, that, that bore fruit that caused you to be a believer? And he says, look, th think about your mom, your grandma. W what did they do? And if you can rekindle those feelings, you can get a new resolve of your faith. And the point there is I'm sure his mother and his grandmother, I, I kind of rip that from the time, they didn't teach him teach him about the correct way to do the communion, the correct way to do baptism, all these ideas. He taught them about faith in God and people that believed in God and what God expects us to do. These are the things that he told and he was told Timothy to do. Now, has anyone got that verse in Romans? I hope I got that phrase down. I might have. <laughs> The time is going faster than I thought. I'll make this quick. <laughs> you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a, uh, for a good person, someone might possibly die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life, his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. One of the pernicious doctrines that has crept into Christianity now is they do not believe in the substitution, substitutional sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That nevertheless, that Christ was just, oh, he just, he loved us. So he showed us the way how to sacrifice for other people. That his, his blood did not, this is a pernicious doctrine. And, and you'd be surprised how, how, how widespread this idea is. That there isn't a, that Christ is not our substitution for us and for here for us. Yeah, time is going, so I'm going to cut one thing. And uh, I'm going to skip over that next Romans verse. It's basically if you confess with your mouth. You know, I think that's one maybe many of you have memorized. But one of my favorite verses is Handel put this one to music. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15:57, he says, "And thanks be to God." who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Handel's chorus, they, as they do, they sing that over and over, like, kind of like the new praise choruses they sing. <laughs> anyway, but Handel was the first one to do praise choruses, okay? <laughs> and the good thing is, you, <laughs> you know, and thanks be to God who has given us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? And I ripped out another obscure, maybe obscure verse for you in Romans. And then I've got a little quiz here at the, at the end. <laughs> but by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified in his sight. Okay, that's a direct thing. Let me explain this really quick and how it was explained to me. Suppose you're driving your car up Old State Street when that was, you know, there was no I-15. Maybe some of us remember that. And I, heaven knows how many stoplights there are. I know, let's say 35, okay? <laughs> and so finally you get to Draper, where the old Draper crossroads were, and you run that light. <laughs> and the cop sees you and pulls you over. So what do you tell the policeman? First thing you say, well, Mr. Policeman, sir, sir, uh, but I, all 34 lights behind me, I, 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 I obeyed those. <laughs> well, why are you getting all upset about this one? <laughs> That's what it means. No matter how many times you keep the law, it will not erase those infractions that you make of the law. <laughs> as stupid as that excuse sounds, but I think that's a good, you know, it's a good word picture. And what's interesting, I, I, any of it, this is some real ramblings here I have here. I have 144 divided by 2 equals 720. Therefore, 1 in 720 chance. Anyone know what that means? This is, this is, this, this is a, a mathematical deduction of what we call the stop clock theory. That a stop clock is correct twice a day. <laughs> so the idea is that clock there, it, it is in the same position, it's in, it has 720 positions on a stop clock, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you make an assertion, 
if you're like the stop clock, you have a 1 and 720th chance to be correct. Well, this, this next verse, and I, I doubt anyone, I, anyone will ever know where this comes from, and it just kind of echoes what we just read about no flesh justified. Matt, do you mind reading that for me? <laughs> and thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory, wherefore thou art blessed, even as they unto whom he shall minister in the flesh. For the Spirit is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And the way is prepared from the fall of man. And salvation is free. And men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto man, men. And by the law, no flesh is justified, for by the law, men are cut off. Yea, by the temporal law, they were cut off. And also, by the spiritual law, they perish from that which is good, and become miserable forever. Okay, Matt, I just made you read the Book of Mormon there. <laughs> I bought the reference there. You'll have to get some magnifying glasses. See? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I invoked the stop clock theorem first, okay? <laughs> okay, and, and on, this, this is one of those doctrines that led me out of Mormonism, truly, when I truly understand what God's grace was. And I just throw that out. I, I, I'm not being very comprehensive here. I'm just hitting the peaks here, and I apologize. But I want to conclude, because time is gone, and I, I, is this last verse, and it's a very short verse found in Ephesians. It says, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. I, I think it might, it might be more understandable to us as if I translate that. There's one gospel, one Lord, and one baptism. Amen. The gospel is the one that we understand. Yeah. And that I've tried to illustrate today. And that baptism, there's only one Lord, and we know who he is. And then, last of all, you know, there's only one baptism, and that baptism is the baptism into, into the Spirit, yes. in God's Spirit. And I leave that. I, you know, this is the unifying things, but these are absolutely essential core ideas and principles that we must adhere to and understand. And, you know, again, I leave that with you. Okay. We're dismissed, and you'll have a good teacher next week.